Welcome to First Floor Corner Store, a podcast about building and strengthening community in the built environment. My name is Maggie Krause, and before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to share a brief and exciting announcement that we are finally in the podcast app <laughs> after all this time. Um, so if you have a smartphone and that is your preferred way to uh, engage with podcasts, you can head over there and search for us under First Floor Corner Store. Each episode has a brief description of what we cover in the episode, and it also has a handful of glossary terms that I have defined as best as I can um, in an attempt to make uh, what we're talking about a little bit more accessible. And now for today's episode, which I am positively delighted to bring to you. Originally from Burlington, Vermont, Ruby Western has made quite a home for herself here in Chicago, Illinois. We were able to sit down together and talk about all the things that she's been up to since I first met her at Smith College, where we were college roommates. I feel like I've had a front row seat to the innumerable creative, artistic, uh, and design-centered projects that she's taken on over the last decade. And I think of Ruby as a person with unbelievable energy reserves for building community and bringing people together in order to share and create and criticize and collaborate, largely through art, design, and performance. These days, Ruby works as the social media coordinator for United States Artists, which sponsors up to $50,000 awards each year to artists working across the country. She also runs her own business as a freelance artist and designer, and you can check that out at rubywesterndesign.com. In this episode, we dig into some of the projects that have been most meaningful to Ruby. We talk about what brought her to Chicago, what she's learned about how to sustain community in art and art in community. We talk about her mentorship with and unwavering admiration for the late author Amy Krauss Rosenthal. And we talk about the ways in which the internet impacts her life as an artist, a designer, and a human being. I think it makes the most sense to begin with maybe an overview of how you arrived here, which is Chicago, Mm -hmm. Illinois. Yes. Because I know that you're not from here originally, and I, I think it's important to share a bit about how you made the choice to be here. Lovely. Uh, I grew up in Burlington, Vermont, and went to Smith College with you, Yes. (laughs) and then (laughs) graduated with an art degree, so naturally I went to farm in Hawaii with a partner that I'd been with for six months. Perfect. Uh, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Just right on the verge of interesting and foolish. Um, And then moved back to Vermont for a bit, and as that partner, who I love dearly as a friend these days, uh, was following her dream to be farming uh, in New York. I realized that I really wanted to be identifying my own dreams and going after them. And at that moment in my life, the dream was improv comedy. So I decided that to do any kind of art, you got to be in a place with people who are not like you and where there are more people than cows. And Vermont did not check either of those boxes. Oh, wow. So I packed up the 92 Honda Accord and drove <laughs> out here five years ago. And improv is not what has kept me here, but it is what lured me in. So yeah. I'm thankful for that. So there's a lot in what you just shared. <laughs> <laughs> Um, why not improv? Like what, when you think about how that was sort of the 
explore but maybe was not sustainable Mm. what was that process like right I think that what drew me to improv was (laughs) I love being the center of attention and making people laugh but also uh the thought of community behind it and when I moved here there were a few different avenues a few different schools to go into and while the people I met were amazing funny incredibly talented and doing gorgeous things these days I was not I don't know. I didn't feel like it was my spot or my community and it also cost a lot of money and it was a lot of time mm. and they moved to a new building and honestly it made a big difference. I mean like <laughs> they in the new building the classrooms were situated so that you were looking at the door to leave the entire time. Oh. Yeah, which is like such a simple thing, but it affected me so very deeply and eventually I was like no. And then we had a break in class and I was like, it's time to leave. It's really time to go. So that was like my big, my big quit of my young adult life. Yeah. I think I was 23. What did it feel like to quit? Like, did you feel distraught or discouraged in acknowledging that what you came here for was ultimately not going to be what you thought it was? I think that I... It was hard to be realizing it, but once I realized it, it was not hard. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, yeah. I had other things that I cared about that I was working on. So I didn't feel a sense of what is my purpose because I just stopped something with nothing else going for me. That would have been very hard. If I was like, I work at an ice cream store and I do improv comedy and now the comedy is gone. What am I doing? Yeah. Uh, But no, I had work that I really cared about so yeah. it was fine so do you want to talk about what that work was because I'm I'm trying to piece together the memory of sort of what I remember <laughs> you participating in and what was moving to you about your first totally. little bit of time here yeah what were you what was overlapping with improv yeah uh well I moved here as I said with an art degree a painting degree not even art history so I looked for any job that would have me uh that had anything to do with creativity and not retail because I admire that so much and I just would be very, very bad at that. And that's something I feel secure enough to admit at this point. That's important. Uh, yes. So not qualified at all for anything beyond like something vaguely artistic. And uh, a month in, I found a Craigslist ad for an author who wanted an assistant uh, and it was very clear that it would be like equal parts heady and interesting manuscript editing and also walking the dog and doing the dishes. And uh, so, yeah, I worked for children's book author Amy Krauss Rosenthal from 2013 until she died in 2017. And I loved the work that she did and what I was doing with her. And I got to use every part of my brain. Mm. So no part felt neglected. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very, very fulfilling gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, how did that sort of stable work environment that you cared about, that you believed in, I mean, how did that feed your creativity or your pursuit of making art or your previous interest in mm-hmm. art or? Yeah. Well, I think I had one of the most like sacred relationships there is, which is like a positive mentoring experience. Mm. I feel like that is. I'm making sure that I mean this. So give me a second. (laughs) Of course. Yeah. I feel like it is 
just as, and sometimes for me, more intimate and fulfilling than romance. To be existing creatively with somebody else that you truly admire, who has things to show you, not through writing them down and telling you them, but by just their being Mm. and making. Um, She was incredibly prolific and motivated, and it was... Like, just knowing that that is possible was so liberating for me Mm. to see that in action. And I think has fed into... I know we'll probably talk about this later, but I quit nine to five jobs in earlier this year and I felt no worry about it. I was like, oh, I know, I'll work and my work matters. And without her, absolutely not. So many people that I talked to about that transition are were horrified. Like that was the first reaction. They'd be like, wait, you quit? You didn't have anything like, uh, but how are you? What? So, and it just didn't occur to me to be afraid in the least. And I think that without working with somebody who um, decided with three kids in her minivan that she was going to write children's books and then became a New York Times bestselling author, wrote like, absolutely timeless pieces wrote more than 30 children's books and like also made all these interesting social pieces and like almost performance art but she wouldn't call them that um but like just knowing that it was totally possible to say this is what i care about and so i will do it better than anyone else because i care about it and because it's my brain and nobody else has my brain and now i will execute it and somehow I will make a living doing this like that I think sounds wild to so many people but it didn't feel wild or out of the realm of possibility to me at all and Mm -hmm. I because of her fully yeah it's really interesting because I I know you very well and I have known you very well Mm -hmm. I Regret that I didn't know Amy Krauss Rosenthal better. I met her one time. Mm-hmm. And I'm so glad you did. Yeah, I am also <laughs> very glad. Um, but the way that you are describing her reminds me of how I think of you, just in terms of so multifaceted, such be- like literally boundless energy, creativity, idea making. Like I think of you as a person I can't really nail down. And... I think when you believe in your own ability to be that, it's very, um, it opens all possibilities. I think like, even just thinking about what we would talk about for this interview, it was very hard for me to be like, okay, Ruby is my, <laughs> this person. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes sense to me that that partnership was very meaningful and meaningful in many different ways, right? As mm-hmm. a mentor, as a friend, as a professional, as a, I mean, I feel like you guys were many things to one another and it makes sense to me that you have carried with you that that belief that you can do all of these things and that if you if you prioritize knowing that and acknowledging it and making time for it that a lot of things will follow Mm -hmm. um yeah it also makes me think of sort of the transactional nature of art on perhaps a less superstar Mm -hmm. scale like i think of you know, we record an album and I have to figure out 
if we can earn more than we spend, right? (laughs) And I have to count how many tickets that were sold to an event, or I have to, you know, there have been moments in my life where I've realized that we've put maybe, you know, 70 hours into a one-hour performance and Mm -hmm. trying to figure out how that can ever be justified. Um, And I always land on sharing and experiencing as part of that transaction Mm -hmm. and like you can't quantify that so it is something that can be exchanged but like you will never know the value of it you will never know if it's worth it right yes um and i we could think about this as a segue maybe i'm just thinking about you as a curator Mm -hmm. right the moments that you've taken that role on in sort of facilitating art in space as an experience as um a physical place I wonder like how does that feel to you to like watch people engage or watch people experience or watch people show up or not show up when you're sort of in charge of curating an experience or a an exhibit or something that like mm-hmm. you're offering for sure well this is okay I'm a cancer <laughs> <laughs> I love being able to help other people feel seen in what they're doing. I think that's something that's really important to me. So actually after I quit improv, I still was doing some performance stuff. And then I put together um, a show of women and queer folks at the Annoyance Theater. And that was the most fun I've ever had before me because I hosted. Mm. So I did my like little (laughs) monologue in the beginning. And then... I would have a curated set of people who, five people a night, they would go up and do their five to eight minutes. And then I would come up with, I made a little desk out of cardboard that hung around my neck like a necklace and I rested a mug on it and I gave them a mug and I would interview them like it was a late night talk show. Oh my God, yeah. Um, So I'd be like, here's their art. Here's a little bit more about them. Who are you? Where do you live? What do you like? Sheep? Cool. Here we go. Sometimes we'd do a little bit together and then I'd shoo them off and then the next person would come up. And... I think that art works best when it is vibrating next to other art. Mm. So I think that, you know, the acrobats I had would be absolutely incredible by themselves, but when before that there was a poem, and before that there was a comic, and before that there was a dancer, you know, that that putting them all in one space and letting them interact with each other is like, ooh, gorgeous and so being able to like orchestrate that and like be the chef of this moment Mm -hmm. was a an incredible honor that folks trusted me with their art and be like one of the most exciting creative experiences of my life thus far Mm. to see what would work well next to each other um so that's in the performance realm and then in college as you well know in our apartment that we shared Mm -hmm. (laughs) senior year uh, I realized it's like we have space and I feel like the art department was so sequestered like into this one building it felt so isolated and it didn't have like the ideal recipe which is people's art next to each other plus community and folks looking at it like that is when everything explodes and like mm. that is when that's like the most beautiful thing in the world. So I invited folks to submit art and I would put up a show and hang it in our living room 
and on the first Friday of every month, and I bought M&M's and bread, I believe, were like I the, remember. the snacks that I chose. <laughs> um, just M&M's and bread. Mm-hmm. Uh, and had some wine, and people would come. And I, I mean, I had no idea what was going to happen. Like, made a Facebook invitation, I think. I think so. Um, I think that was it. Yeah. No posters, no anything. Just trust in the internet to bring people together, which it does mm-hmm. in a big way. But uh, so many people showed up. It was like a person per square foot. There was like hitting shoulders everywhere. Yes. And uh, that was like a light one on. I remember being very moved by how many people would submit art that like weren't art majors and that I didn't even know they made art and Mm -hmm. I felt liberated on their behalf just by being able to like view it and I just remember feeling like it was a very special moment to walk around a room full of people looking at your stuff that maybe doesn't get recognized or you don't Mm -hmm. have access to the other platforms to like share it for Um, sure I'm thinking about that memory I'm also thinking about the space that I was able to see after Amy passed away, mm-hmm. um, which was an overwhelming experience for me as a participant, um, limited as my scope was on her work and her life and her contributions to the planet that we live on. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, how does that experience like sit in your memory? What were you feeling as someone who was very much involved in creating that space and bringing that space to life. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was, it was so many things and it's, it's very hard to pare down, but the story is that she was working with Carrie Seacrest who owns a gallery in Chicago, uh, before she died talking about doing an exhibit of her work. And after she died, we decided to keep going, which was definitely her wish too. Um, she like passed it off our last meeting. She was like, all right, that's for you now. So I worked with Carrie Seacrest and two of Amy's very good friends, Brooke Hummer and Meryl Smith, uh, and put this together. And it was, I mean, it was one of the most emotionally intense times of my life, right? Because we started, she died March 13th and then it opened, um, that July? Yeah. So there were only a few months between, and a lot of it was spent planning and putting stuff together. So emotions were in overdrive for every single person working on this. Um, but it was a collection, an archival collection of things from her work, because she had worked everywhere on everything. Like, the list is like a CVS receipt. Like, it is the <laughs> longest thing in the entire world. Um, so Brooke and Merrill. Uh, actually went through her things. I think Paris, uh, Amy's daughter, helped too and picked out what was going to be on this plinth uh, of like little bios she'd written and articles because she, you know, wrote for Dave Egger's first magazine and mm. all this ridiculous, wonderful, hilarious stuff because, mm. yeah, she was like sweet and earnest and also bitingly funny and very sarcastic. Mm. <laughs> so that... I, <laughs> That was very much shown there, which was great. Um, The last line of her book, Encyclopedia of an Ordinary Life, is, I was here, you see, I was. Which 
after she died, took on a whole new meaning. And it was talking about once she had died, and if somebody was reading this book, you know, 100 years in the future, would they think of her as alive as they the reader was at that moment that they were reading? And she listed a bunch of things she did, um, which that sounds like such a clunky way to describe this absolutely gorgeous piece of text that is talking about the mundane and also enormous moments in life. And she just captures it all into one perfect paragraph Mm. and it ends with, I was here, you see, I was. So we printed that in vinyl and put it up on a wall. And one thing that was really important to me at first Friday things was that we always had a project that someone could be a part of, Mm. right? There was always an interactive piece to this. So you come and, if you're feeling socially awkward or um, you're not, <laughs> but you want to be involved in making because you're looking at these wonderful things, that that was always an option. So on the wall, people wrote, um, like responded to different prompts. There was a different prompt every week. Um, and there were bean bags, and there were her books. <sighs> I don't know. I feel like trying to make an exhibit of about somebody who had done so many things and still make it a cohesive experience was hard and exciting at the same time. Mm. I feel like it happened. I feel like it was, I mean, a tiny little glimpse. It was a very concentrated look. Um, And then we had a couple performance nights where people who knew her or worked with her came and shared their work, either about her or otherwise. And I think that was also essential because so much of what she did and so many of her projects were bringing humans into the same place and creating connection. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that one was wild. That was something else. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that. Mm -hmm. I feel very lucky that I was able to catch that space as it was, as it existed. Um, And again, I think... I don't know, it, it made sense to me. And I, I hear what you're saying. I hear like how impossible it probably seemed as a task to distill such a, a life into an exhibit, into a space. But I did feel like people arrived and immediately felt um, like what they were seeing was recognizable in, mm. in relation to her and her work and her, just like her way of seeing. I remember when you first, sometime early on before you had worked for her for very long, I remember watching that video of her um, at the Bean mm-hmm. in Millennium Park and just, yeah, just realizing the power that she had over people, not because she wanted power over people, but because people were compelled by her. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think that's just like the, uh, such a, a hope of, of someone who makes anything is that people will be compelled by it and people will like show up and want to participate in it. And for sure. Yeah. That video, the beckoning of lovely is that project. Yeah, for sure. She had like an absolutely brilliant, incredible, unique mind, but none of her work was alienating. Mm. And it all, I mean, so much of it was talking about like, you know, when you can't tell which side of the car the gas thing is on. And then you realize that it's right there on the dashboard, you know, stuff like this, that, folks notice and they think and then it's out of their mind forever and she just kind of immortalized these tiny little moments that so many folks do experience um 
and called them important and like put them in a frame, which was so lovely. And I can't, you know, I feel like when I try to live my life that way, I am much happier. Mm. You know, I wake up and I'm like the sun coming through the window. And instead of being like, well, now it's time to make eggs. I like sit and think about it for a second. Oh, the day is better. So doing that all the time. I mean, that is, that's something else. (laughs) Totally. And I'm also thinking about another exhibit that you were involved in curating and Mm -hmm. a space that you created from a very sort of unquantifiable history, right? Like trying to distill a moment into a space. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear you talk about that experience a little bit. For sure. So, I mean, Chicago used to have a thriving dyke bar scene and I moved here after the last ones closed. There were a couple here, like, within the decade, but I missed them. Um, So Howard Brown Health, uh, an amazing organization in Chicago that gives health care to everybody, everybody, right? Um, And a lot of, there's a lot of, um, they help queer folks out a huge amount. Uh, Partnered with Gerber Hart Library, which is in Rogers Park, has hours that are open to the public, and is the largest collection of queer publications in the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like, wall to wall. I mean, the most incredible collection ever. They also have a book sale every year, and I got... Anyway, just recommend. Can't recommend enough. Uh, so, they partnered together, and Liz Weck, who uh, I believe her title is Director of Social Services at Howard Brown. Sorry, Liz, if that is incorrect. Uh, partnered with Kristen Kaza of No Small Plans Productions, who does a lot of event planning and also has a space called Reunion Chicago, which we were going to hold it at. They had been talking about wanting to do an exhibit, and they pulled me in to curate after they heard about the exhibit that I did for Amy. Um, And that was, I mean, it was absolutely fascinating. I basically had complete creative control over the subject matter of the exhibit. I got to choose what was on the walls. I spend a lot of time writing, but I also spend like 20 hours a week in the library reading stuff, which was incredible. There are all these gorgeous papers from the 70s and 80s, these lesbian periodicals, that one of them was supposed to be monthly, and at the bottom of one of them, instead of saying like September, it said apple cider season, because sometimes they would (laughs) skip a month, and so that's what it was called that time. it was, yeah, that was an amazing project to be able to just, I feel like I was in a college class that was completely self-directed, but I was also being paid for it. And also like there was a major outcome and it was for other people. Um, so we made this space. There was an actual, like there was a bar in it that during events people would serve um, alcohol. Licensed bartenders would serve alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were people like, when, when people came, it was people who were our age, and there were also a bunch of like older dykes who had been to these places. So one of the pieces in the exhibit was a map where I put pins everywhere that there were dyke bars in the 70s and 80s in Chicago. Oh, wow. And I left a pen and pins out um, for folks who knew about secret ones, because a lot of these were not public knowledge. And a few of them added places that they had gone, mm-hmm. which was very very cool cool. and told stories about their experiences and this is definitely i mean the thought of the dyke bar uh disappearing has been um 
there's a lot of different organizations and folks who are working on stuff about this. There's Last Call in New Orleans who uh, do performance pieces about this. J.D. Sampson did a series with Vice called Where Have All the Dyke Bars Gone? And then Macon Reed did an exhibit in New York, which preceded ours, and I did not honestly research enough before we put ours on. Um, but hers was archival, and also she's an amazing artist, and she put together, she like built a pool table and built these, bo- like it is gorgeous, one of the most visually appealing things ever. Um, and we ended up talking with her and put a video of her exhibit in ours so folks could reference that. Um, but I think just because it's been all over the country, folks are talking about this. It's like a nostalgia for a space that a lot of us didn't experience. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, this is reminding me of an interview that I did a while ago that has recently been released into the world where I talked to an old friend of mine, Adair Green, who is curating QTPOC spaces in Brooklyn. And there is something really complicated, I think, about maybe a contemporary queer experience who maybe has heard of the legacy of, like, queer spaces, lesbian bars, like dyke bars. I mean, that is all stuff that I have heard from queer elders, from like old lesbians who mm-hmm. reminisce about these spaces. And I I hear them and I, I immediately recognize the value of that and how different it is. Like, I feel like my experience of queerness as it is built into the environment mm-hmm. is very different from what folks were experiencing for so many different reasons, right? It was like before the internet. It was before you could find a party on Instagram. It was before, <laughs> like, there were television shows that had queer characters on them. I mean, there's so much that's different about how those spaces were utilized and hidden and celebrated um yeah i mean folks refer to like the gay club as church you know it's where you go and you see everybody that you know and um but also i mean in these papers there were just as many events outside of bars as there were other places Mm -hmm. and it was people were invited to bring their children and you know you're at the performance place or just the lesbian cafe, or at Mama Peaches, which was a lesbian restaurant, which on Tuesdays only lesbians were allowed and was open for like seven years. In oh Rogers Park. my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I also wonder in that time that seems like the I don't know. It's not the glory days, also, because there was a bunch of problematic shit going on the whole time. Yeah. But um, the bar is definitely a huge part of it. But I think there was also a lot more intentional time being trying to create daytime queer spaces too mm. that currently I, th- I don't know I wonder if folks don't feel like it's that important because we have the internet and all these other ways of connecting right and it's definitely not safe to be queer in a lot of spaces and that is but also it is not as secret as it was in that time so I don't know maybe folks don't feel like they need to have these defined spaces as much. Mm. I think it's it's gotten a lot more into mainstream times. Yeah. I think it's a really interesting... I don't even want to call it a dilemma, but I do often feel like the, the sort of 
generational gaps either in experience or understanding of the other experience like I have been just as frustrated with older queer folks for what appears to be a lack of information about like the nuance and complexity of my life and community Mm -hmm. just as much as I can physically feel the frustration that they have for me as someone who's like naive or doesn't understand how hard it used to be and Mm -hmm. um yeah it's just and I'm sure that happens in a lot of identity spaces where you have that kind of staggering of generations and everyone's always going to feel like they're not fully being seen or um yeah I'm curious about how queer folks can merge more of everybody's experience into everyone's memory and and I think curating a space like an exhibit about dyke bars is a really important tool and a really important um, priority to have in terms of like building everybody up by acknowledging like the differences that exist in our own memories and how we can see each other and understand more fully the moment that we are in mm-hmm. um, which also makes me think a lot about the internet like you were saying I mean we kind of uh, we were scheming about what we would touch on in this conversation and I think um, I think as a freelance designer and artist you rely and are fueled by the internet that is my perception anyway Mm -hmm. like on days where I feel so tapped out of the internet I often think of my the many people I know who depend on the internet for their livelihood and can't tap out of the internet because it means like a missed commission or a referral that gets dropped I mean Mm -hmm. I I have privilege in not relying on the internet in the way I think you do um I would love to hear your thoughts about that obviously but what do you think about the internet as a physical space as an emotional space as a creative space like what is your what is your vantage point on like what is possible now and what is maybe more challenging or Mm -hmm. like what are the internet specific barriers that exist in the pursuit of making or gathering for sure I mean, it is just the biggest parfait of content that the world has ever seen. You know, I I think, so when I'm curating a space and I'm thinking about where work is going or who is performing after who, and it's very intentional and everyone who is there is looking at every single part of this and then they leave and it was like all put together, everything got attention, everything was part of this, it's packaged. And then... The internet has no way of doing that, right? I mean, I think that you can curate small spaces, but you cannot guarantee that folks will experience it in a certain way. And I guess you can't do that in actual built spaces completely either, Um, in an art show anyway. I think in a performance you kind of can. It's very manipulative when I think about it. But, I mean, the internet, you can scroll past something, you can unfollow something immediately. Like, there's people are curating their own experiences every time that they go on the internet. Mm -hmm. And no matter what I'm putting out there, it is even more detached and choose your own adventure than putting things in a room and hoping people will look at everything. Um, On the other side, though, I think that like there's so many ways to connect, but there's so many ways to connect. And so it's, it can be incredibly overwhelming um, and to the point where you can't actually 
digest everything that you're looking at, but also it is a way to learn so much information, to look at new art, to discover things via a hashtag, like what a wild tool, and to see what your friends are sharing and learning so much about politics, brain matter, paint types, kinds of herring, like <laughs> within four minutes of each other. Yeah. I, when I'm ta- like revisiting what I was talking about before, it's like art next to each other plus community. I feel like that is what the internet is. It's content next to each other plus whoever's looking at it um, in a way that is chaotic and wild and also like steaming with possibility. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, the reason that it is so intense is because it is both the very best and the very worst at the same time. And it's like, it is the opposite ends of the spectrum, but it's never in between. Hmm. So some of my, a couple of my gigs are running social media for folks. So that is something that I also, as I'm working on it more, and I'm seeing more about like trends and engagements and like breaking this down more scientifically, it's also horrifying (laughs) and incredibly uplifting to see like what people want to know about and how they want to engage with things and it's it's fascinating to see what a person will do with this in their hand that's all for now I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this episode, and I hope you'll head over to rubywesterndesign.com to see all of the wonderful things that Ruby makes. If you're enjoying First Floor Corner Store, it would mean the world to me if you left a review in the podcast app. I'm also on Instagram at firstfloor.cornerstore and on Twitter at FFCS Podcast. I would love to hear from you. I hope you'll tune in next time. 